A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Lots to talk about today. It's been a busy week in terms of economic news, data, and also Joe Biden in the United States has given his 100-day speech to Congress. And there's a lot of economic and financial, as well as social and political implications and stuff to talk about from that. On this side of the Atlantic, we've had some important data from the Eurozone. And we've had some updates from Brussels on economic sentiment, industry confidence, and other current and leading economic indicators, which are very interesting and stand in stark contrast, actually, to the double-dip recession data. We've had GDP data for countries and for the Eurozone as a whole released only today, showing that in contrast to the United States, we're in a recession in Europe, whereas we've had economic data from the States for the same first quarter, showing that the US economy has taken off like a rocket. And I think there are all sorts of interesting angles and aspects of those numbers that we should pay a little bit of attention to. Something else that I want to talk about today is the earnings, the profits of the big tech companies, particularly the United States ones. They've all been releasing their numbers this week. So as well as economic data, we've got individual company data. And I think there are lots of stories within those tech company profits, tech company earnings that are just fascinating. And we can't have a podcast, Jim and I, without at least mentioning COVID at, at least once. So I don't know whether we're going to call it a COVID soundbite or a COVID corner, but we're going to spend two minutes talking about the so-called accelerated, surprising lockdown uh, release that uh, we've been told about in Ireland this week. 
So going to the economic data, I think that looking at both what's happening in the States and what's happening in Europe over the course of the last few days, I'll throw that ball over to you, Jim, and ask you what you've thought of all of those numbers. Yeah, it's really interesting, Chris, because the EU economic sentiment indicator showed an increase of 9.3% on the month. And to put that in context, it was the largest monthly increase since this series began in 1985. The great thing about the sentiment indicator is that the uh, resurgence was broadly based both from a country and a sector perspective. And this is despite the fact that it occurs at a time when many service sector businesses particularly are still being subject to varying degrees of heavy restriction across the continent. I guess the businesses are basically, and consumers indeed, are basically concluding that the vaccine rollout is going to be a game changer and that um, confidence is starting to preempt this. Um, I I guess it has to also be put in context that uh, this rebound comes after, obviously, a a very, very difficult 12-month period. Uh, But still, it just shows you the human element of economics and the way in which sentiment can change so dramatically and can have such an impact on, you know, economic outcomes. And I suppose it shows the indomitable spirit of the human being. So that's a good thing. Uh, This morning, we got the quarter one GDP data for the euro area, a little bit better than expected, but nevertheless, a significant contraction in activity, the second technical recession in 12-month period. So we're back in double-dip territory. And as at the first quarter of this year, Eurozone GDP was about 5.5% below its pre-crisis peak. Very positive forward-looking indicators, but certainly where we are at the moment does indicate weakness. And in marked contrast, on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, the first quarter growth numbers yesterday 6.4% annualized, uh, very, very strong, stronger than expected, strong whatever way you want to look at it. People, a lot of US citizens received two stimulus checks during the first quarter. And um, my brother in the States talks to me about uh, the impact of those checks. You know, they're coming to a lot of people that don't really need it. So it's 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 contributing very, very positively. And w- one thing that is really interesting is that the savings rate in the States in the first quarter was at 21%, up from 13%. So as is the case here in Ireland, there has been a huge surge in household savings in the United States. And if you look at a couple of other elements of uh, the US number, we saw strong rebound in business investment spending. We saw a strong rebound in consumer spending. So all of this just feeds into a narrative that we have discussed uh, for, for some time about you know the pent-up demand in the system and the rapidity at which we're likely to see an economic rebound. Okay, in, in the States, I really do buy into the story about a strong economic rebound. I'm a lot less convinced about the euro area. Very positive forward-looking indicators. And Chris, you have oft expressed the view you've been incredibly bullish about the global economic outlook over the next 12 months or so for reasons that I think we all know and understand at this stage. But one thing that does puzzle me a little bit, because I've also heard you talk about the policy failure at a European level to actually respond through fiscal policy to the crisis that's going on. And you can't have it both ways. I mean, if you're so bullish about 
the global economy, and I presume Europe is included in there, why would you suggest that a, f- a fiscal package, a much stronger fiscal package is needed in Europe and that there is policy failure? I think there's a number of dimensions to your point there, Jim, and I would agree with most of it, but I do think it comes back to the policy question. But let's go back to those stark numbers. The US, comparing like with like, and different countries do it differently. You mentioned 6.4%, but that's the way the Americans measure it. The way we measure it over here, the US grew by 1.6% in the quarter and the Eurozone shrank by 0.6%. Over the course of just three months, that's a massive gap. China grew by plus 0.6%. So the US is outpacing China at the moment. So one of the reasons for expecting a global economic boom is that the two biggest economies in the world, the US and China, are clearly booming and everybody else gets dragged along with it, depending on the extent to which they are open or closed economies. And so it's good news for Ireland, you know, the classic small open economy thing that we often talk about in an Irish context. The issue for me is whether or not this is going to be sustained. There's clearly going to be bounce back and you can call that a boom, you can call that a V-shaped recovery and you can see that in the survey data that you've talked about for the Eurozone. Things do bounce back to normal. Within that you can see the employment prospects that people talk about within those surveys. They bounced after a dreadful 2020, as you said, but they're just back to normal. They're just back to where they were. There's nothing particularly exciting going on. And you talked about the services industry split, and that's partly to do with this global economic bounce being led by the States and China, is that that will typically involve industrial goods rather than services, certainly in the initial stages and certainly in terms of this recovery because that's where the bounce back in Europe is being seen. It's being seen in industry, heavy industry, manufacturing industry, rather than services, which are still heavily restricted. You can see that in the price data, the expectations for where there is going to be a little bit of inflation in Europe, such as it is, is going to be in industrial goods. Again, that was all there in those surveys. And you can see this globally. Price of things like copper, copper has doubled. Steel prices are going through the roof. Look at the prices of wood in the United States and elsewhere. If you're renovating your house using any wood, get on with it would be my recommendation. So that the the old-fashioned stuff is going up in price because that's where the world economy is rebounding. And it's what happens after that rebound. And that goes back to Joe Biden's 100-day speech. And you can slice and dice that in any number of, of different ways. And we have done on this podcast and in our written work. But one aspect of that that I just wanted to focus on today is to say Joe Biden stood up, in other words, said, we are not going to accept economic scarring as a result of this. We're going to make sure that our economy doesn't just bounce back, but very quickly is going to get back to where it would otherwise have been, even if we'd not had the pandemic. We're going to get this economy by 2022, 2023, back to the trajectory that it would have been on if we hadn't had the pandemic. We don't accept that there's going to be long-term economic scarring. By contrast, I think that Europe is saying, economic scarring, sure, what can we do about it? Nothing. And Europe is accepting that once the bounce back is over, GDP, for example, and employment will be lower for a long time relative to where it could and should be. They're accepting economic scarring. And I read the, the strategy document, the finance update document that was produced by the Irish Finance Ministry, uh, I think last week or the week before, as more or less explicitly saying, yeah, sure, economic scarring, what can we do about it? 
and Joe Biden saying you could if you wanted to do a lot. But these are choices and that's what economic policy is all about. So I do think that there is a risk to the European outlook and I do think that one of the questions that we're going to have to address going forward is the extent to which the US goes on this supercharged recovery and Europe doesn't and it becomes a very much in, in this part, in this hemisphere anyway, a, a two-speed recovery. And I noticed that the French finance minister is quoted today as saying the EU has lost too much time rolling out its 750 billion stimulus. So even within Europe, there's some recognition that there is a problem building. And I think, I think you're right to ask the question about whether or not this European bounce back is likely to be sustained or whether the experience of the next few years is going to be like most of our career, Jim, we've always talk, often talked about disappointing European growth. Yeah, Chris, I'm, I'm really interested in what's happening in Europe at the moment, uh, the economic perspective that we've described, but also the political perspective on it, because Europe traditionally, as long as we have analysed Europe, it has been dominated by a Germanic Northern European fiscal austerity, orthodoxy, sound public finances and so on. When you see here the French finance minister coming out with that sort of criticism, is there a marked political change happening in Europe? And the reason why I asked that question, well, I'm, I, it's a sort of a rhetorical question, really. But if you look at what's happening politically around Europe at the moment, you have the new saviour of Italy, Mario Draghi, former ECB president who famously said that the ECB would do whatever it needs to do. And that basically saves the euro area and the eurozone from a really serious crisis after the Great Recession. Uh, so you have Draghi now proposing massive fiscal stimulus in Italy. And the amazing thing is that the markets are totally unperturbed. He's talking about a fiscal expansion, 2.4% of GDP. If an Italian prime minister had said that three years ago, the Italian bond market would have fallen out of bed. If you look at what's happening in Germany with federal elections in September of this year, the green candidate could very well be the chancellor, or at least that's a possibility. She certainly would not be married to the Germanic fiscal orthodoxy. So perhaps whatever way the German election outturns, we could be starting to see a significant shift in the German mindset, notwithstanding, of course, the fact that the German constitutional court is always there in the background trying to impose manners on the political system. And then you have France, and there's no doubt about it, you know, France would, ha and would have a tendency to go for fiscal expansion, um, not least because Macron has an election next year. He's in serious trouble at the moment. He needs something. So, are, are we seeing a, a remarkable turnaround in fiscal orthodoxy in Europe and is stuff that we've been talking about for 20 years now being confined to the dustbin of history? Nobody would be more pleasantly surprised if that was true, Jim. Going across the Atlantic to Biden's speech to Congress, talking about the fiscal transformation that he is trying to achieve, we know that he faces many headwinds in Congress. The Republican Party is implacably opposed. Arguably, half the US population is opposed. So it remains to be seen whether he will get through his agenda. But at least he's going to give it a go. You mentioned a couple of politicians in, in Europe who are going to give it a go. And I wish them luck, because I think they face even more formidable headwinds than does Joe Biden. But yes, the mood music is clearly changing on both sides of the Atlantic. I think that Europe has been Europe when it comes to its 750 billion recovery fund. It almost exhausted itself politically 
in getting to that point where it agreed to some common bond issuance to that figure of 750 billion. And it's almost as if having exhausted itself, Europe's body politic has had to go down and lie down for a while and not do anything with respect to actually getting it over the line to the point of it being distributed. So I think there are elements of what you are describing, of a new Europe and a new agenda, but the old Europe dies hard, in my opinion. So I'd be doubtful that on both sides of the Atlantic, the full extent of this comes through on, on the basis of certainly what Biden is achieving. But I think the Americans have a much bigger chance of success than Europe. And the one thing that's really interesting about Biden is how popular everything that he's doing actually is. It's playing very well. And that's put the Republicans on the back foot when it comes to their opposition, because people like what he's doing in the States. And I wonder if you had a Joe Biden in Germany, whether there would be the same popular response to somebody saying, yeah, we're going to rebuild all the bridges, all the roads. I just don't think that the average German taxpayer responds in that way. I, as I say, I could be pleasantly surprised. Draghi is certainly going for it. Draghi is trained, um, as trained with a lot of the people that are trying to do that, what they're doing in the States. And I suspect he's of one mind with people at the Fed, at the US Treasury and in the White House. And he is he's trying to do a mini Joe Biden. And again, I wish him luck and I will be pleasantly surprised if he, if he achieves it. But the right model to take when it comes to looking at European fiscal initiatives is to, is to wonder whether they, that isn't, in fact, an oxymoron. Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued, I have to say, by what's happening in the States, because uh, I certainly would have had a view last year before the presidential election that I wanted rid of Trump. Um, because I thought he was an obnoxious character that depressed me every morning when I saw his latest intervention in social media. And I was thinking actually this morning, isn't it fantastic when you think about it? We haven't heard a word from him in four months or so. Um, but I was also intrigued by an economist. I, I saw a piece in The Economist online this morning. Uh, the headline was Biden, who had been described and regarded, and I certainly regarded myself, as a very boring, unexciting candidate that I did want to win the election, okay, but he was regarded as a boring, unexciting candidate and he's now been compared very favourably to FDR and the New Deal. So it's, it's, it's quite amazing, actually, what's happening in the United States. And I have to say, it does fill me with a lot of optimism as somebody who is a huge US file. I love the United States. I'm really interested in it. So I think it's great to see this happening. One of the other things that happened uh, this week was the latest meeting of the US Federal Reserve. And of course, we've discussed in numerous podcasts, uh, probably to the point of boring our listeners at this stage about the whole inflation situation and the outlook for inflation. And um, it is clear that the Federal Reserve has a really difficult balancing act because you get the sort of growth numbers that we saw in the first quarter. Uh, we see the ongoing strong recovery in the labor market. So the Federal Reserve is going to have a serious job on its hands to manage its rhetoric, to manage expectations, because uh, on the one hand, it is clearly intent on uh, keeping interest rates low and keeping up its bond buying or quantitative easing program. Um, but on the other hand, we are seeing the strong growth rebound uh, with a definite upturn in inflation, you know, happening and more coming down the tracks. But yet um, the other night after the Federal Reserve's policy meeting, 
uh, they send out a very reassuring message that um, they are focused on maximizing employment and on stable prices. And they have changed their target for inflation previously, a rate of 2% or lower. They're now talking about an average of 2% over uh, a prolonged period, whatever that means. But they are definitely prepared to tolerate higher inflation for the foreseeable future. So that Federal Reserve narrative really feeds into uh, what Biden is saying about the US not accepting scarring. So it's good to see the central bank and the political system working in tandem at the moment, I think. The late, great Seamus Mellon once described the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, as Sunningdale for slow learners. I've been absolutely fascinated this week to see the British media in particular, but really only the British media, not the Irish media, suddenly wake up to what you were describing there, which is Biden as a truly radical, transformational president. The BBC, for example, has been running daily features on both radio and TV about what he's up to, as if they've suddenly discovered it, which in a way they have. But it's been evident now for months, since before he became president, what was going to happen. And you've got this extraordinary triumvirate of the White House, the US Treasury and the US Federal Reserve, all singing from the same hymn sheet, all very obviously doing this in a planned strategic way. They've obviously been thinking about this for a long time. There's a lot of very clever people in those three institutions now driving this. And this has got massive economic implications because it's being driven by a political and social agenda to essentially see off Trumpism. And we will wait and see as whether or not it is likely to succeed. But the really hilarious thing is over here in Europe is the way in which people have only just started to wake up to this as if it's something new. And it's been going on now since I say since before Biden became president. And uh, they've been getting ready for this for a long time. And I still think that we're not making enough of what the US is up to, of what Biden and all of the arms of the US state are up to. I think it's quite a radical transformational experiment that may or may not work. And like you, I certainly hope it does. Do you say unlike me? I said, I apologize, Jim. Like you. <laughs> like me, thank you. Does. Forgive me. Forgive yeah, me. For I, I'm very excited you. about it, I have to say. And rightly so. With all due respect, Jim, you know, I've been trying to get you on this podcast excited about the Biden experiment since we first, if you go back and look at what we've been talking about, and I've seen you looking at me as we've been talking, because as well as recording this, we, are, we actually have it on video as well. And I can see you looking at me a couple of months ago. What on earth is he going on about? Now, I think, if you don't mind me saying, the penny has dropped. The scent has dropped. Absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. The, the One of the many different aspects about the booming US economy and the way in which it is likely to continue to boom because of what Joe Biden is doing is we've talked about the top down numbers, but we see this week also a raft of numbers from the bottom up. And that is, of course, US companies reporting uh, they have a seasonal pattern to their reporting numbers. They report every quarter. And just as the US economy has quarterly numbers, so do US corporations. And I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the truly extraordinary, but of course, with parallels read across from those top down numbers, the truly extraordinary profit numbers of some of US corporations, all household names. And I'm going to focus on the tech numbers, a few of the companies we haven't, it would take all day to go through the, the, the truly amazing features of these numbers. But 
A household name, of course, is Amazon, a company that you know began as a an online bookseller, and its share price this week, as I speak, I think, is at a record high. For the most recent quarter, it was the second in their history, the other one being the one just before, that they had over $100 billion in sales. Now, there are a whole raft of numbers that are just going to be huge, huge, huge numbers, just to give you the sense that they are big. That sales number was up 44% year over year. So Amazon grew its sales by 44% in a year. And when you think about where Amazon has come from over the decades that it's been in existence, for a big company, a massive gargantuan company to be displaying such huge growth rates at this stage of its evolution is almost defying arithmetic. Because in order for something huge to post a big growth number, the absolute amount of growth has also got to be huge. In the quarter alone, it produced profits of $8.1 billion. Now, this is a company that started out, as I say, as an online bookseller. Some of us can remember that. Half of those profits didn't come from its online shopping at all. It comes from something called cloud computing, of which Amazon is absolutely massive in. It's got an AWS division, as it's called. Its online stuff, of course, is huge. Just over half of its online shopping thing is, is generating profits. But this cloud computing thing that it offers in particular companies, but some individuals as well, accounted for 10% of revenues, but 50% of profits. These things, this cloud computing thing is, is, is enormously profitable. The profits it made in the first quarter, just in the first quarter, were more than its entire profits over the first 22 years of its existence. This is a company that you might remember, Jim, Jeff Bezos used to always reinvest every penny he made in the company. And boy, is it, is it paying off now. I could go on, and the numbers are enormous. Moving on to Apple. This is, again, an enormous company. It recently, relatively recently, passed something called market capitalization, the actual size of the company. The company was worth over $2 trillion at one point relatively recently. And now we're speculating very quickly about whether or not it could reach three trillion. It's a remarkable story. It's all about, it's not just about the iPhone, but it's mostly about the iPhone, and in particular, 5G has supercharged its, its uh, revenues. They were up 54%, another huge number for a company that's already big. And it, 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 its revenues were, were up to 90 billion, almost the same as Amazon's, but with a bigger profit margin. Pure cash, the, the amount of unencumbered cash that this company threw off in the first quarter, this is a pure measure, of, of your like, of just how profitable or, or, or good this company is, as just generating pure... It threw off $22 billion of pure cash. iPhone revenues up alone of 66%. It announced $80 billion of US... This is the political point that Apple were trying to make. $80 billion of US capital spending. It's going to invest $80 billion in the US economy over the next few years. Um, and it's also going to buy back its own shares at an even faster rate than it's going to be investing. It's going to buy back $90 billion of its own shares. For those that remember our uh, podcast with Seamus Coffee a couple of weeks ago about taxation, and of course, a lot of people will look at these numbers for Amazon, for Apple, and all of the others that we could talk about and say, well, how much taxes are they paying? 
Amazon, on the numbers that I have been able to work out, are going to pay about an effective tax rate of about 15%. And the way in which the Financial Times reported these and other numbers this week is that, and this is a quote, tech earnings stunned Wall Street. And the combined revenues of the big five, the alphabet, which is Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple, were $322 billion. And the combined profits... The combined profits of the big five were up 105% to $75 billion. Now, I think that throws up all sorts of interesting economic, political and social things. The one thing I would say is that uh, people, of course, will start talking about taxation. We've talked about it on this podcast a lot. People will say that these companies are monopolies and that they need to be broken up. These companies are this, these companies are that. But one thing I would say is that whatever... We've been saying for years about these companies in terms of them being monopolies, oligopolies, and undertaxed. Nothing seems to change. And if anything, this winner-takes-all model for the world economy, for individual companies, has just suddenly accelerated. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, on, the, on the question of are, are these companies monopolies, well, they obviously are. But if you look at how they attained and achieved their monopoly position, um, it's through doing things really, really well. Um, you look at what Amazon initially delivered in terms of book selling. It was revolutionary and it really, really took off so quickly because it was a bloody good product that was delivered in a very efficient and relatively cost-effective manner. You look at Apple. I have an iMac on my desk here. I regard it as a piece of art. And uh, incidentally, I think the that my favorite book of all time was Walter Isaacson's book, Steve Jobs. I mean, the, the Apple story was just absolutely incredible and they produce a fantastic product. And it, it reminds me of um, back in my farming youth in Waterford, where you sell a few cattle to Clover Meats in Waterford City. Uh, you get paid after about three weeks if you were lucky. And then Larry Goodman arrived with Anglo-Irish Meats he and the selling point for Larry Goodman at the time was the farmer left the factory, having driven in the cattle, left the factory with the check in the back pocket. This was revolutionary. He was regarded as the absolute hero, the god. And now he is demonized because he's achieved such a monopoly position in the beef industry. You look at Ryanair. To me, Ryanair was the best thing ever happened, the Irish traveler, because when I was young as well, uh, if you wanted to go to London, you basically had to take out a mortgage to do so. Suddenly, this disruptor was allowed to enter the market and everything changed and changed utterly. So that when companies do things really well, they will have a natural tendency towards creating a monopoly situation. And I, I guess the challenge then for policymakers is at what stage do you shout stop? Uh, because they, they undoubtedly... Um, I'm not saying Ryanair has, it hasn't, it operates in a very competitive environment, but some of the others we talk about, the big tech companies, they, they have effectively a monopoly situation and a monopoly on data. And, and, and it is something that the Biden, your hero, Joe, it's something that he is very uh, taxed about as well in terms of their monopoly situation, antitrust law, etc. So uh, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how that whole story unfolds. But meanwhile, these companies continue to go from strength to strength because they're bloody good at doing mm. what they do. And you can't knock that. No, you can't. It's quite clear that the pandemic has accelerated digitalization. 
It's pushed more of us online. Those of us that were online are there more than ever, all the homeworking stuff. Corporations, our employers have had to spend more on IT and on cloud computing solutions and platforms. And that's one of the reasons why both Amazon, Apple and Microsoft are doing so well. We look at more ads. I mean, Google and Facebook registered the strongest advertising growth for years. One of the interesting companies that didn't actually was Twitter. And I, I know that uh, we both have strong views on that. But as you say, it, it's it's winner takes all. They really are taking all. And I, I see very little chance of that changing in the future. The only issue is when, when does the, the, the arithmetic of growth finally kick in and these massive companies have to almost arithmetically stop producing gargantuan growth rates. A quick comment on Twitter, Jim, because I'm fascinated by your perspective on that. Another tech company that arguably should be doing as well as these others, it isn't. It's disappointed the market, unlike these these other businesses. And again, as it often does, it disappointed with its user growth numbers, the number of people actually on the platform, and therefore, or relatedly, the advertising revenues weren't as much as people hoped. Now, is, is this a problem that's just Twitter and people prefer using these other platforms? Or is there something more fundamental going on? And is Twitter's basic business model, given what we know happens on the platform, the way people use the platform, is it fundamentally toxic? Five second answer, Jim. Uh, yes, I think it is fundamentally toxic, to be honest, uh, the way in which it's used. I find as I, I find it really interesting and useful as a source of information on an ongoing basis. But on the other hand, at the other hand, there's an element of it that's absolutely obnoxious. It's toxic. So it's 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 really good and it's really awful. It's a combination of both. And and I and I I reckon that a lot of people are basically voting with their feet this at this stage and are going off it. And I would draw the analogy with Facebook. I was an avid Facebook person, and a couple of years ago, I just had it up to my teeth. And I exited Facebook and haven't been on it for about three years at this stage. And I, and, I, and I know a lot of people who've migrated away from it, as is the case with Twitter. So the business model is certainly pressurized. I agree. I think that one of the things about Twitter is that it can be fantastically useful. And I do use it a lot myself to try and publicize our own work here on, on this podcast and, and our written work as well. And it's incredibly useful in that regard. And I know lots of journalists, writers and academics use it in that way. And used in that way, it can generate lots of information, valuable information flows and lots of interesting discussions. But that's only about 20% in my crude estimation. The 80-20 rule for Twitter is that 80% of what goes on on that platform is, is often shocking. That's not Twitter's fault. You could argue they should moderate it more closely, but freedom of speech and all that. But people utilizing their anonymity just to be vile and awful. And I think that, as you rightly say, turns a lot of people off it, it allows if it, if it doesn't allow people to be vile and awful it certainly allows them to be angry any or all of which i think turns and, people and off and Chris, not... is it in your view possible to become a twitter person that you should have or to have an account on twitter that you provide some form of id and that you have to register in your own name is that possible? whether or not that's a good idea i don't think it is because i think that would be the death of twitter because i think the whole, the, the whole point about that 80 percent that isn't particularly attractive is that it's often in fact almost always anonymous and people aren't rude they aren't angry and they certainly aren't vile uh, when they have to give their own name and so they would just migrate to the more anonymous platforms that already exist so you're just you're basically saying that the majority of people are obnoxious yeah 
No, I didn't quite say that. I said at times they can be. Certainly, the, okay. certainly. I mean, the, the, Twitter's users are measured in the hundreds of millions, not the billions. So I'm not talking about humanity as a whole. But this aspect of the internet does seem to attract the worst in us. Thank you for that, Jim. I'm going to conclude by just having our COVID five minutes or COVID two minutes, actually, looking at the time. Jim, you would know better than I that there has been a lockdown surprise in Ireland this week in that there has been an accelerated release of restrictions that came supposedly as a surprise to some people. I personally think that this surprise, the idea that this was a surprise is laughable. It looks so orchestrated to me in terms of managing expectations, perhaps understandably so, but nevertheless, I do think that the media have been absolutely ridiculous in falling for it, in that all that the Irish have done is what exactly what their counterparts in Europe in places like particularly Italy and France have done, is that they've looked at what's been happening in Israel and the United Kingdom. They can see that once you reach vaccinations at certain critical levels, that provided the virus remains, that the vaccines, the virus doesn't start evading the vaccines, that you can release your economy. It's, it's, it's quite simple, learning the lessons of other countries. And that, that's exactly what, the, what they're all doing. So the idea that it was some, some big surprise um, to me, was, was was just laughable, and I think the media has been ridiculous in in falling for it. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think you're you're probably right there because um, it, it definitely has come as a a pleasant surprise to many people. My wife is smiling this morning, which um, is great to see uh, because we we've had this sense of dark cloud now for months, um, living through these level five restrictions. So it is exciting. It's fantastic. She's made her first appointment with a hairdresser and by god does she need it in a couple of weeks time <laughs> i hope she doesn't listen to this uh but uh, no there there is It'd be nice knowing you jim <laughs> there is there is a very very positive response here to what happened yesterday evening and, and it is definitely reflecting the fact that despite the fact that case numbers are high we've had another 545 today and four deaths Despite the fact that case numbers are staying high, hospitalizations continue to fall, which is exactly the experience in the UK. But of course, the Irish will never say we're actually looking at what's happening in the UK and we're following that example. Because as I see it, public policy in Ireland over the years has been driven by um, a hatred of the old enemy. So good to see that the change perspective. You could see that in the... Yeah, you could see it in the Department of Finance strategic update document of uh, last week or the week before. The only COVID experience it wanted to, to learn from, or at least had charts and data in it, were, were from Israel. There was no mention of the UK's experience. One small example of the way in which one thing nobody nobody can ever do is learn from the, the British experience. God, no. I, I would conclude this part of the discussion by referring back to the think point we were making earlier on, which is... I think a, a, an incredibly important theme going forward is that from the, the economic consequences of the pandemic are being accepted in places like Ireland. Scarring is being taken as something you can do nothing about. In America, they're saying um, we can do something about it. In Ireland and Europe, they're saying we can't. If there's one single message that I'd want to leave with people today, it's that. And the conclusion that I would draw from that, and we'll leave this to our next podcast, I think, Jim, or at least one aspect of our next podcast we've never talked about exchange rates here and maybe the time has come because if you put all that together one obvious question is why isn't the euro falling out of bed why isn't an awful lot weaker but we'll leave that one we'll leave that one to next time so it's been great talking to you again 
and um, speak to you soon. Great. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.